Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. You may remember that in 1851, the New York Herald Tribune, under the sponsorship and publishing of Horace Greeley, employed as its London correspondent an obscure journalist by the name of Karl Marx. We are told that foreign correspondent Marx, stone broke, and with a family ill and undernourished, constantly appealed to Greeley and managing editor Charles Dana for an increase in his munificent salary of $5 per installment, a salary which he and Engels ungratefully labeled as the lousiest petty bourgeois cheating. (laughs) But when all his financial appeals were refused, Marx looked around for other means of livelihood and fame, eventually terminating his relationship with the Tribune and devoting his talents full-time to the cause that would bequeath to the world the seeds of Leninism, Stalinism, Revolution, and the Cold War. If only this capitalistic New York newspaper had... treated him more kindly, (laughs) if only Marx had remained a foreign correspondent, history might have been different. And I... I hope all publishers will bear this lesson in mind. (laughs) The next time they receive a poverty-stricken appeal from a small increase in the expense account, from an obscure newspaper man. So today we're going to be speaking with Mal Hyman, who is running for Congress in the South Carolina Congressional District Number 7. Welcome, Mal. Hey, good to join you. Yeah, so I wanted to talk um, with you first about some foreign policy things. You have a long history of working on human rights initiatives and issues. And I know that you went to Nicaragua in the 1990s um, to monitor the elections there. Tell us a bit about that experience and what you witnessed. been in Nicaragua the first time in 86, a uh, Witness for Peace uh, a group that uh, has done human rights work for years. Uh, sets up the translators and the connections, and they got us all around the country to talk to uh, Sandinistas, but also community organizers, priests and professors and people from the embassy, and I was appalled at what I saw. Uh, I knew that in the election in 84, international observers from 24 countries had said the elections were free and fair, And it was only the American observers that said they weren't. And that became the pretext for more money going into the Contras. The triumph of the Sandinista Revolution on July 19, 1979, was celebrated with euphoria in Nicaragua and applauded far and wide. It marked the end of one of the region's most corrupt and brutal dictatorships and the beginning of a promise of freedom and democracy in an impoverished and war-torn country. It was the culmination of a long struggle, a victory for our country's independence, sovereignty and self-determination. 
But in Washington, the victory of the young pro-Cuban Sandinistas was seen as a threat, one the United States would go to extraordinary lengths to crush. To do nothing in Central America is to give the first communist stronghold on the North American continent a green light to spread its poison throughout this free and increasingly democratic country. So I thought it was my obligation as a teacher to get there in 1990 to monitor the election. And I really didn't do anything different than anybody could do if they wanted to. The UN trains you for a couple of days, the OAS. And, and then you go to, I went up to Hinatega, one of the areas zone of conflict. It wasn't the most dangerous, but and then I just monitored the election there. And it would go a lot quicker with cell phones these days. Yeah. And you report back what you've seen, and probably it pushed whatever problems and danger over a valley or two that was out of sight. But there there were hundreds of us that were part of the process, and uh, I had been to, to the West Bank in Gaza in uh, 88 for the, the first mm-hmm. intifada. So I, I was feeling like I, I needed to do those things as part of trying to be a decent teacher. Right. So when you were in Nicaragua, the first time I didn't realize it was early as the 80s. So you went there twice? Yeah. Uh, the first time okay. was just 10 days for fact finding, you know, and you typically will bear witness when you come back and try to talk about it. And mm-hmm. The second time, um, I, I felt that I should be part of the election monitoring process. So it was okay. a little bit more involved. And I've only monitored two elections, that one and Mexico in 94. Uh, I thought I might be mm. able to, uh, to do more of it, but I haven't seemed to been able to, to have that opportunity. Uh, it was very humbling both times. I bet. So now just to give some context, what was going on with Nicaragua at that time, and you mentioned the Contras. Now, I know our younger audience members probably have uh, a superficial understanding of what was going on with Ronald Reagan and the Contras and also Iran, um, that whole ordeal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Did you? Now reports from Honduras, the possibility of even limited U.S. involvement still exists. U.S. military exercises here are running full speed ahead. While American troops were being deployed to four training locations far away from battle zones, Honduran warplanes were bombing Nicaraguan positions in response to the Sandinistas placing down landmines as they withdrew toward the border. And as long as Nicaraguan troops remain inside Honduras, the possibility exists that U.S. air support may be used to transport Honduran troops to the border for retaliatory strikes. And I could foresee that happening. Has an official request come through to your knowledge yet? Not to my knowledge. In previous U.S. military exercises staged here in Honduras, U.S. troops were kept clear of the border with Nicaragua by a 20-mile limit. But this time, there is no 20-mile limit. While some of the groups certainly will be moving closer to to where hostilities have taken place, uh, they're not going to be in any danger area. But there is no specific mile limit. And the reason is clear. With these maneuvers designed to intimidate the Sandinistas, U.S. commanders here continue to insist they're prepared to do anything asked of them. But as American troops carry out this show of force, they are also fully aware of the controversy it's caused back home. To the critics, 
come some harsh words. They're protesting just to protest something, okay? They don't, they don't understand that you can't have communists running free all over the place doing what they want to do. What happens if the United States get attacked by communists or we leave it open to be attacked by communists? What happens then? Well, there are still many questions about what will happen here in the coming weeks. The only sure bet is the U.S. won't pick up and ship out until the Sandinistas do so first. In Honduras, John Crane, News 4. See anything firsthand that would um, sort of mold that conversation? Sure. Uh, by way of background, when the Sandinistas finally were able to prevail in the revolution in 1979, they overthrew the Somoza dictatorship that had been in power in Nicaragua since the 1930s. American interests in Nicaragua go far back, long before the 1980s Reagan era. Since the 1800s, the United States had been calling the shots, invading Nicaragua no less than eight times, overthrowing and installing successive governments. And their interests extended to their control of land and agricultural production, meaning that the rural poor were essentially tenants on their own land. But this overwhelming U.S. influence helped create a Nicaraguan rebel legend. Augusto Cesar Sandino would lead the first armed nationalist movement in Latin America to drive American military forces from the region. Sandino's name would later be taken by the Sandinistas, who claimed to be representing his principles. And the Somozas had ruled with an iron hand, and there really was no chance to vote them out of power. And it was the embodiment of what John Kennedy was saying. If we make peaceful change impossible, we make violent revolution inevitable. It yeah. captured the imagination of a lot of people because the Sandinistas also had priests in their ranks. A number of people thought it was a revolution of Jesus Christ. There were hmm. students, uh, labor unions, of course, uh, peasant organizations. And when they prevailed, uh, they tried to move toward really a Franklin Roosevelt uh, agenda, but they mm -hmm. were fought by the Somoza family and the old elites. And even mm -hmm. though the Sandinistas had won awards from the UN for their ideas on health care and creating a public education system for everyone, and were building the roads and bridges and the infrastructure, um, they, were, they were fought very heavily uh, through uh, organizations that became funded by the CIA. In right. essence, what happened is the old Somoza National Guard fled to Costa Rica and Honduras, and our country gave them weapons and training through the CIA. Mm -hmm. They were called the Contras, and while mm -hmm. they never took over even a regional capital or a small town, they did destabilize the economy and make it very dangerous to live in border areas. And the war continued for quite a while, and it did wreck the Sandinista economy, so that mm -hmm. by 1990, I had a number of people tell me, my heart's with the Sandinistas, but they're not going to ever be able to end this war with the United States, and the economy's never going to be able to grow. We're never going to get opportunity. So... In essence, it was one of those dirty wars in Central America mm -hmm. where sometimes Congress was voting money uh, through the yeah. CIA. The election in 90 took a slightly different form in that 
Money from the United States came into the election through the National Endowment for Democracy, which was the conduit for uh, U.S. foreign policy money that went to mm -hmm. the uh, candidate that was essentially supporting the old Somoza regime, a moderate version of the old Somoza regime. Her name was Violetta Chamorro, and mm -hmm. she won the election. And the Sandinistas stepped down from power peacefully and waited their turn to try to win in elections in the future, which they eventually did a number of years later. Right. So, you know, you know, and, and, and Reagan had been funneling money uh, from drug or drug sales, from uh, weapon sales, arms sales into the Contras. And they were also involved in the drug trade. So there was so many levels of deception and screwed upness associated. Remember that time the United States sold weapons to the Iranian government in a weapons exchange for hostages deal in spite of an embargo against selling arms to Iran? I'm talking about the Iran-Contra scandal. This scandal resulted in the single largest short-term drop in approval ratings for any U.S. president in American history. So here's what happened. We know from declassified documents and what became known as the Reagan Doctrine that the Contras, who were in the early 1980s battling the Cuban-backed Sandinistas in Nicaragua, were, as President Reagan once put it, the moral equivalent of our founding fathers. Under the Reagan Doctrine, the CIA trained and assisted the Contras and other anti-communist groups across the globe. This was a challenge for the Reagan administration, however, because the Democrat-controlled Congress at the time opposed any U.S. government in involvement in Nicaragua. Still, Reagan insisted that no effort should be spared in aiding the Contras. The events that led to the words Iran and Contra even being used in the same sentence are the result of a complicated set of super-secret operations that would alter the public's perception of President Reagan dramatically. It was 1985, Iran and Iraq were at war, when Iran secretly requested an arms deal from the United States. National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane convinced Reagan that the deal was a good idea, despite an existing embargo against selling arms to Iran. At the time, Reagan had also grown frustrated over a stalled hostage situation involving seven Americans being held by Iranian terrorists in Lebanon. The deal takes place anyway, violating the embargo and, consequently, striking a deal with terrorists, breaking Reagan's campaign promise never to do so. By the time the public learned that the transaction took place, more than 1,500 missiles had already been shipped to Iran. Reagan addressed the media, denying that the sale of weapons had been a weapons for hostages exchange, and later simply claiming that they didn't have any information available to him at the time. Speculation about the involvement of Reagan, then Vice President George Bush, and the administration at large was everywhere. Take a look at the CBS interview from 1988. Then Vice President George Bush was asked about his involvement. How can you reconcile that you were there, Mr. Neer, underscored three separate occasions that it was an arms or hostage swap and told you you were dealing with the most radical elements in Iran. You were dealing straight away with the Ayatollah Khomeini. I was told what they were doing and not what we were doing. And that's the big difference. And Dan, I expressed my concerns and reservations about that. That has been testified to under oath by uh, Mr. Poindexter. That's not the end of the story, though. During the Arms for Hostages deal investigation, it was found that only 12 million of the 30 million dollars that the Iranians reportedly paid for was accounted for. The discrepancy resulted from a diversion of funds aimed at funding the Contras in Nicaragua. Associated with this, 
And to me, this was a prime example of American interest protecting empire abroad. This wasn't, you know, they tried to sell this idea that we go to war for humanitarian issues, when at the end of the day, it's not humanitarian whatsoever. It has to do with protecting American empire. And when I say empire, I mean multinational corporations and the like. Um, So this was one of the grotesque wars that have come out of that. And I would say, you know, many of our involvements currently in the Middle East are also uh, part of that same sort of um, fundamental thinking that occurs. But the Iran-Contra affair, and it was rationalized in the United States by Ronald Reagan as mm-hmm. Americans have having courage, and this is a pretty close paraphrase, to give freedom a fighting chance in Nicaragua. And yeah. Nothing could have been <laughs> further from the truth, but he right. delivered it so well uh, that a lot of folks believed that was the case. I think Noam Chomsky was right. Nicaraguan, mm-hmm. a, a country with five elevators, didn't have an army that would have threatened us at all. But they stood as a threat of a good example. And in that Mm -hmm. sense, it was a threat to American business interests throughout the region. And I agree. Mm -hmm. It's part of the larger context of an empire protecting resources. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I'd be glad to talk about any aspect of uh, the human rights trip that I took during the first intifada. I was in Gaza City. Uh, I was in Janine and East Jerusalem. Mm, Janine. Those, okay. those are my areas. And we were led by the minister of uh, Stanford, was was one of the leaders in the group, and it was the Arab American Anti-Discrimination Committee. I remember uh, Reverend Herb Schmidt, was the fellow mm-hmm. who led our congregation. And he was he was really a good guy to do it because it was heartbreaking as somebody who was yeah. raised Jewish to see what was going on. And of course, yeah. my letters of introduction were in Arabic. And I, I dared not tell them my background because mm. uh, some of them would have been fearful that I'd have been Mossad. So mm. uh, it was... Uh, that actually makes sense. Inter- First interview in Janine was a woman who lost a young child, a two-year-old, because of the tear gas, uh, Mm -hmm. which can kill young people, people who have respiratory problems, and seniors. And it was was rough to listen to the story. And then part of the process is I would get them to recount their story, make sure it was clear, and have them sign Mm -hmm. an affidavit on it. I collected a number of them, as did the the people in the group, and then we presented them to Congress upon our return. The Abu Rajab family is slowly but surely being forced from the cluster of apartment buildings which are their ancestral family home. Israeli settlers arrived on July 25th, broke into three of the apartments and moved in. Within hours, the army turned the site into a closed military zone, in effect providing protection to the settlers and restricting the Abu Rajab's access to their own home. The family say they've also been harassed by the settlers, including verbal abuse, rocks and sewage thrown at them. Hatem Abu Rajab has lost hope anyone will help his family. 
We only have faith in God. We have no hope in the authorities and the occupation authorities, only in God. We've tried this before, negotiations for 20 years. What are the fruits of the negotiations? Where are the results on the ground? Israeli settlers first took over the apartments six years ago, which they say they bought legally from Palestinians. The Abu Rajab family says the people the settlers brought from didn't have the right to sell the property. The Israeli High Court ordered the settlers to leave. Who owns the houses remains a legal dispute. The settlers live here illegally, but they do have some high-profile political support. Yeah, you know, and it seems to me since then it's just the government in Israel has become increasingly right-wing, almost to the point where it's become neo-fascist. You have Likud, who is in control now, that's Netanyahu's party. And then you have parties that are even further to the right of Likud, like Home Party. And in the Home Party, you often see members calling for Palestinian genocide, and they're not even fearing using those particular words. Yochanan Gordon is a writer for the Times of Israel, and he posted an article on August 1st titled, when genocide is permissible. I kid you not. I kid you not. I could end this segment right now and you already know how absurd Yochanan Gordon is as a human being. And how absurd the Times of Israel is for running the story? How many people were in the room during the editing process when they said, hmm, yeah, let's run it. The Palestinians feel more and more powerless as the settlers, with burgeoning state support, move into the Israeli mainstream. They've always believed God was on their side. Now they had their strongest political backing yet, in the form of the pro-settler Jewish Home Party, a key part of the new Israeli coalition government. With the recent election of an extreme right-wing government, with hardcore settler supporters at its core, these young settlers have been encouraged, even emboldened, and their voices are only going to grow louder. I find this to be um, a very frightful situation because there's, there's no way that you're ever going to secure peace in the region when you're, and call it, if you call the Palestinians terrorists when you're engaging in acts of terrorism yourself, th this doesn't end well for anybody. And I, I just, I think they're so caught up. They're so caught up in this cycle that they don't even hear themselves at this point. You know, we had, what, two weeks ago, we had uh, press members that were killed by Israeli snipers for, for simply being out of protest. Yesterday, President Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had a phone call. And according to the White House readout that they put out afterwards, apparently the two did not talk about what was probably the most important thing for them to talk about. And that's the fact that just a few days ago, Israeli troops shot more than 750 Palestinians, killing at least 15. Yes. That is the correct number. More than 750 Palestinians shot, at least 15 dead. Now, this happened at a large protest along the Gaza border on Friday, where as many as 30,000 people gathered to begin what was planned as a six-week sit-in protesting Israel's blockade of Gaza and supporting Palestinians' so-called right of return to Israel, a right that, I should note, the Israeli government says doesn't exist, and if enforced, would spell the end of the Jewish state. Now, Defenders of the Israeli military's actions will point out the protest was endorsed by Hamas, which rules Gaza in a thuggish and anti-democratic manner, and which uses violence and terror in its campaign against Israel. 
They will also note that at this particular protest, there were some protesters who threw rocks, Molotov cocktails, and rolled burning tires at the border fence. All of which is true, but in no way justifies what Israeli soldiers appear to have done, which is perch on a hill and pick off protesters with sniper fire. Much of it recorded for all to see. Like, for instance, this video, which shows live shots being fired at a teenager as he runs through an empty area to retrieve a tire. Or the shooting of this young man as he prayed near the border fence. As far as we can tell from the video evidence, IDF troops in sniper positions rained down bullets on unarmed people again and again and again. And not only did the president of the United States react by saying nothing, not only have the vast majority of members of Congress, Democrat and Republican, been entirely silent about this frankly unconscionable use of force, the U.S. blocked a U.N. Security Council statement calling for an investigation of what happened. Now, from day one, the Trump administration has sent the message to the U.S.'s Middle East allies, particularly Israel and the Saudis, that they can do whatever they want. There will be no raps on the knuckles as there might have been in days of yore, no more tisk tisking about restraint. And our allies are taking that directive and running with it. And that video of teenagers being shot in an open field, that's what it looks like when they do. And when you saw the video, it was shocking because they were absolutely just picking folks off one by one. Did, I don't know, did you see this? Do you have an opinion on that particular situation? Uh, well, I've read about it. I haven't seen the videos. I read through okay. the versions in Haaretz and Jerusalem Post and what Al Jazeera had to say. And mm -hmm. it was part of the policy of colonialism that oh, absolutely. on and off for years. There have been times when the peace process looked like it was more hopeful and had some traction. and. And you're right, at this point, mm -hmm. uh, even the Labor Party is a faint echo of itself. Yeah. And we don't hear those voices the way we need to. And the American public uh, doesn't, we could have access to that information. People don't know to look there. And right, right. APAC is, is very careful in influencing the media. Uh, fairness mm -hmm. and accuracy in reporting has done some good studies on the power of APAC in the media. So bottom line is most of the American public and the Jewish public doesn't have a very good idea of what's going on over there. Right, and right. There have been systematic human rights abuses for a long, long time. It's, it's most appalling when it hits the press because then you, you realize you're totally blinded and it, mm -hmm. you can't even find out what's going on even if you're very aggressive in trying to find out. And when I was there in 2014, uh, it was clear that the peace process was not the first issue on people's minds. They were worried about prosperity and a strong economy. So it seemed like yeah. colonial power that had defeated the opposition rather than trying to keep uh, the idea of a two-state solution alive deeply troubling. Mm -hmm. I think one of the ways out of this uh, might be having American rabbis visit the West Bank and Gaza, same thing that the teachers and, and human rights people are seeing, and, and they might be the yeah. right one to, to bear witness on this and change the dialogue.
absent that, I think we're in for a miserable uh, three-year stretch. This administration uh, is blind on a number of issues, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian mm-hmm. issue included. Yeah, you know, moving the <clears throat> the embassy to Jerusalem was a very bad idea. That was one of the key parts of the Oslo Accords was that discussion. And I also, I think you're right on what you're discussing here. I was very much blinded to what was going on there truly until I had a friend that lived there in uh, Tel Aviv started posting with his camera phone uh, about when, 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 when did we first get camera phones? I can't remember now. But he started posting on social media some of the things that he was involved in. He's a leftist. and He would go to protests. And I was shocked. Uh, because I had no idea over um, some of the attitudes that were becoming prevalent in the country. And then you look at some of the Israeli settlements in Hebron and some of the stuff that's going on there. And honestly, I don't see how you do not describe this as terrorism. They, you know, there was the incident a year and a half ago where they lit, they poured gas down the Palestinian boy's mouth and lit him on fire. I mean, my God. What, how did how, you know? It just you see this stuff, and you're like, "How did we get to this point? And why are we not having this discussion?" I think when a lot of the right wingers there try to equate uh, what Jewish identity with with, is, with Israeli identity, it's a mistake, and it it's because they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, Zionism isn't necessarily Judaism. Exactly, and it has exactly. been used to justify colonial policies for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the trip I took in 88, I had a, a similar epiphany in seeing it up close. And yeah. I pulled out the old report that, that we had, and we had journalists and ministers and teachers um, on our trip, and, and a sprinkling of activists. And jointly, we wrote a statement, and uh, we found through our interviews, we spoke with people who were tortured while they were in custody. We yeah. saw excessive use of force by the military, denial of, med- denial of medical services, illegal expulsions, detonations without due process, systematic harassment, collective punishment, confiscations and destruction of property, confiscatory mm-hmm. taxation, denial of freedom of thought denial of minimal community services, and genocidal actions. And that was, we had all signed on to that in our report. I was not welcomed by rabbis when I returned because they could Mm. see what I was going to say. Yeah. When I spoke about this to a physician uh, in a surrounding city who had grown up in Jerusalem and was Palestinian, um, mm-hmm. we had a long discussion and he said, now, you know, in part why I had to have my family leave. And wow, it had been yeah. going on a long time before that, but he felt I at least came of age in 1988 and was willing to speak out publicly on it. So, uh, yeah, it yeah. is deeply unsettling and rabbis. Mm-hmm supposedly the teachers of the community, I think, have abdicated on this question. Deeply troubling. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, one of my favorite websites for getting information at this point is Mondo Vice. I don't know if you follow that particular blog. 
Uh, I don't know. But they do. Mm, you'll you'd appreciate it. They do a great job of talking about these issues uh, and giving you a really truly authentic reporting on the situation. You know, what do you feel at this point? Uh, I'm seeing folks now discussing having a, a one state solution, meaning that you end up with a country, no matter if it's called Israel, Palestine, whatever it's called. But it's it's a democracy, an actual democracy in which everybody uh, lives under the same rule of law, equal, you know, not an apartheid state where it's divided up. Do you think that's a plausible solution? I don't know. I mean, and theoretically, I think that would be a good idea because then you would, truly would have um, an equal state. But I think the pressures from um, the Zionists are that, well, we can't have that because we need our state to be, you know, a certain percentage of Jewishness. And, and if we let the Arabs become full citizens and we become one country, that, that's no longer the case. But on the other hand, that's how a democracy grows up. Well, it's the debate over whether you want a Jewish state or whether you want a democracy, because the Palestinians could outnumber the Jewish population, and the animosity is very deep. They rarely meet each other. I mean, it's an apartheid state at this point, and we have an open ghetto in Gaza. So I I think there's so much healing to be done. I know Mm well-meaning people that are... uh, Experts in the region are raising that as a possibility. And I, of course, entertain it as a possibility because uh, what's going on now seems to be just killing the, the two-state solution. I'm, I'm not certain. Uh, I, I'd like to be in Congress yeah. on the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, uh, over there uh, taking a, a look at it and, and talking more about it. Uh, but I... I all I'll say is I'm, I'm skeptical, but I'm very open. I guess when I returned, I really had hopes for Oslo, and it seemed mm-hmm. modest for the United States to allow the Oslo Accords to unfold and, and push Israel to not uh, colonize anymore on the West Bank mm-hmm. and create more opportunities in Gaza. And when that broke down, uh, I, I'm not certain how to proceed. I, I, I'm with you, Mal. I don't know how to proceed either. I just know that it's it's untenable at this particular junction. And, you know, I don't, you know, then you also have the situation where Netanyahu's son, Yair, has now embraced, um, in, a, in just a perverse, bizarre way, has embraced Pepe the Frog and some of the doctors. I stand with Yair and his memes, and I'm glad to see that there is an alt-right in Israel who are standing against the corrosive influence in the West of the Jewish people. Because they both agree that an ethno state is an okay thing. And this is a very dangerous position to take, in my opinion, for Yair, because it's, it's, you know, you want to say to him, look, I understand that you want to consistently be logical here and say, I agree with an ethno state. We agree on that. And maybe we can find some common ground. But at the same time, you're embracing a white nationalist that thinks you're garbage. This is a very racist neo-Nazi individual, and why can't you more clearly see why what he's preaching is so dangerous, and perhaps that's why you shouldn't preach it yourself? Well, I, I agree with you, and I think the, the books that are out on Netanyahu might clarify some of the ideological nature of, of that family. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hope that some of the corruption and business dealings at least weaken Netanyahu's hold over people. Um, 
he, he's uh, a gifted orator uh, and I think is, is blinded uh, to uh, what he has done in the West Bank and Gaza. He is in a position to be the, the Richard Nixon reaching out to China, and he didn't have the, the character or fortitude to do that. Um, so mm. he had a lot of power. He, he could have used it to broker a, a deal, uh, and he didn't. Um, mm-hmm. So I think a lot of confusion in the Netanyahu family. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I, I, I honestly believe at this particular junction is the reason he chooses not to broker a deal is because in his mind, and, and he's been very lenient on the settlement expansion, I think in his mind he intends to take over all the land, but that's just a done deal. I don't think he's looking for peace, and he just wants to complete the colonization. But where does, I think the other side of that is where does that leave Israel as far as being secure? I think uh, it becomes more dangerous they more, the more that they walk down this road, and I don't think that they see that that's the case. I agree with you, and tragically, they're just waiting for another intifada to take a different form. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw some of that in Gaza with people ready to explode, uh, and yeah. it will uh, probably take that. You know, the the position of the Palestinians is not well understood in Israel and Mm -hmm. the United States is not raising the issues that it needs to and the Jewish community here is divided but largely neutralized on the topic Mm -hmm. so I I see it like you do drifting from an untenable status quo into something worse where we'll we'll be reacting to the next explosion yeah, sobering, sobering conversation. Um, but I'm glad this is a conversation you're willing to have. And we certainly need more uh, Congress members in Congress that are willing to have this conversation. Because what happens there does affect our security as well. We are, are married in this way. Yeah. Well, I was going to say this weakens American credibility and trust in the region. And it yeah. has for decades. And Americans yeah. need to hear that national security concern. This made it tougher for us in Iraq and Afghanistan, wars that I didn't support. Um, mm-hmm. But it did make us a lot tougher, and it, it, it contributed to the rise of ISIS. I mean, all this, as you yeah. suggest, is part of the way America is perceived in the region, and it weakens our security. That's right. And you bring up ISIS. Uh, you know... We, we have a lot of conversations about that in the media, but the one thing the media doesn't seem to want to discuss is what our contribution to the creation of ISIS is, nor do they seem to want to discuss uh, the situation in Libya that we've fundamentally had a hand in creating. I mean, there's now a, a slave trade going on in Libya, and I worry because we seem to be headed down the same road with Syria, and oftentimes our interference creates worse situations and and nobody seems to want to have that discussion. We just keep plowing ahead. And I worry because both parties are at fault for this. You know, over the weekend, you know, when Trump was bombing Syria, I was appalled to see many of the Hillary Clinton faction saying, you know, complaining about the situation, knowing full well that Hillary Clinton also had wanted to bomb Syria. So one, one of her team, um, 
uh, team per- persons who had been on her campaign actually made the made the comment that look what you did if you didn't vote for Hillary. We now have an actual madman bombing Syria instead of a sane woman. <laughs> like that, <laughs> right? I laughing is the only response to that because you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Tragic comic. Yeah, it's hard right? to know. Yeah. Like we like we said. Uh, Reality is is uh, stranger than satire, uh, so <laughs> we do find ourselves in in a situation in the Middle East where it's uh, after extended colonialism and failed policies, um, mm-hmm. we're left with a larger and more complicated series of problems in Syria that just stopping the the use of chemical weapons is a really small portion of it. And we yeah. didn't even wait for the Red Cross and the UN to verify it. We right, in. right. But we're not intending to go in much further other than the mop up ISIS and keep the Kurds from causing any problems with the Turks and others in the region. So we still have no call for a regional peace. And you're right. It was American aggression as part of our empire that we, went into Iraq, and it was, uh, you know, there were no nuclear weapons or chemical or biological weapons, and it wasn't that Saddam Hussein was somehow supporting ISIS. All of that was pretext uh, in order to start mm-hmm. the war, and it was predictable that there'd be this ethnic split after a while because it had been so deep in the region, mm-hmm. and that played on to as you and many of your listeners probably know, what the United States did to Iran in 1953 when we overthrew the government of Mossadegh there. It's actually been an open secret for decades, but for the first time now, the CIA has released documents that show its role in the 1953 coup. That is the coup that toppled Iran's democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh had moved to nationalize oil production in Iran. Well, the U.S. was concerned at the time that that would mean a victory for the Soviets in the Cold War. So shortly after his election, the CIA began to plan his overthrow, teaming up with Britain's MI6. Now, the CIA, we've seen it spelling out its involvement in a series of newly declassified documents. These are the actual documents marked confidential, top secret, eyes only. It's the stuff of crime and mystery and spy novels. This one talks about the security implications of CIA letters of commendation for those who served in that operation codenamed TP Ajax. And this one, dated July 22nd, 1953, almost a month before the coup, it talks about preparing an official American statement to follow a successful coup. That's right. They did have a democracy, and they said the oil of Iran belongs to the people of Iran, and and we (laughs) overthrew Mossadegh and led to the the Muslim revolution there in 1979 that then supports the Shiites that are in Iraq uh, that oppressed the Sunnis when they had a chance to oppress them. So, you know, Mm -hmm. our effort at colonialism has completely failed. And people yeah. have to see the the long-term impact of these invasions where we can briefly win the war, but we can't win the peace. Intoxicating at the time that we can use military might to create stability and justice, 
uh, and we're unable to point to many places where we've been able to do that in the Middle East or around the world. You know, and that's right. And it seems to me such a, a naive, uh, exceedingly naive belief. And both the neoliberals and the neocons hold the same neoliberal or the same naive belief. And that is that if America instills Western values into another country, the other country is going to want them and accept them and embrace them because our ideals are the better ideals. And that's not necessarily the case. And we see it time and time again. And then when we instill democracy, but we don't like the democratically elected person, we overthrow the regime and put in somebody else. So we're almost, we're almost the biggest hypocrites out there. You can't have it both ways. Either you're for democracy and you accept the outcomes of that democracy for what they are and you leave it alone. Or you stop pretending that that's what you're for, because really, at the end of the day, this is about empire. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> right. I think like, there's a useful book that came out called The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. Talks mm -hmm. about the use of the CIA during the 1960s under the Dulles brothers. And I think that, mm. that gives us a feel for how we were creating some of the empire that we've been talking about subsequent mm -hmm. to those years and just to uh, to let your listeners know that was when Alan Dulles headed the CIA and his brother John Foster Dulles headed the State Department and both had led the Council on Foreign Relations set up in Harvard 1921 with academics and business leaders and bankers and politicians to advise on U.S. foreign policy, trade policy, and investment policy. And the CIA had been, and I suspect is to this day, still pretty closely tied to American business. And mm -hmm. Absolutely. That was always justified as stopping the spread of communism, but pretty well understood <laughs> yeah. in the agency that it, it spread the business opportunities of many businesses, and they even called it within the CIA on company business. So mm -hmm. we, we've always had uh, different pretexts for the expansion of business in different ways and subverting of democracy in the name of freedom. Um, right. Nation building is hard. Democracy is, is on the decline. Um, it, it is facing a number of challenges internationally. And uh, American foreign policy can be used in more creative ways to, to help bolster civic forces, but we'll have to be far more creative in doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think it's fair to say John Kennedy was moving in that direction before he was assassinated mm -hmm. uh, and was loathed by many business and banking leaders, as well as military leaders, uh, former members of the CIA uh, and, and members of the mafia. He had created a lot of enemies and he was reaching out for more civic forces in Central America. All that changed mm -hmm. under Johnson almost immediately. Yeah. So, and speaking of Kennedy, you have a book coming out um, at the end of the year, I believe, on the assassination of President Kennedy. Tell us a bit about your book. Well, I've looked at this for years and as a teacher, you have to answer on certain dates 
what did happen? And you, you've got to be able to give a good answer, and it's deeply humbling uh, to realize how complicated this is and how it reaches into government and that the Warren Commission didn't do their job and neither did the House Select Committee on assassinations. So let, let me just briefly mention that as as I get into this and started writing on media coverage, uh, Oliver Stone was, was putting together his movie and on the lighter side, a friend who's connected in Hollywood a little bit says, I, I can get you Oliver Stone's home phone number. I'd like to talk <laughs> to him. And I had nice. no idea how Hollywood worked. So I called and his wife answered the phone and she said, how'd you get the number? And I just said, a friend of a friend. Listen, I just want to give your husband my dissertation notes. And she paused and said, I'll get you the name of the researcher for the movie, Jane Rusconi, and mm -hmm. uh, called Jane. She took the notes, said, if we use anything, I'll give you credit. And, uh, you know, we could use you maybe as a consultant. Got, got back to me after reading a couple days later and said, we agree with what you're saying. We think we're a little further than you are on this, but I owe you hmm. a favor. So before the movie came out, she came to Coca College. And we had a panel of experts, and we talked about it. And mm -hmm. it, it got me on the track, and I realized I needed to get into the archives more. Mm -hmm. so I started doing that and going to conferences and had an opportunity to meet the head of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Richardson Pryor, a congressman out of North Carolina. And I remember nervously walking into his office to ask him about this. And... Uh, he, uh, he says, hey, you're a political scientist. Is there any science in political science? And I said, uh, <laughs> sometimes, uh, but sometimes we deceive ourselves. Listen, I've been reading your report, volume five, page 212. We talk about the police running up the grassy knoll and people identifying themselves as Secret Service, but we know Secret mm -hmm. Service was not there uh, by their claim in Dealey Plaza mm. at the time, what do you make of this? So I think he knew he was in for a good conversation, and we talked for a couple hours. At the end of the conversation, he said he wished his committee had another six months, another $10 million, that he wished the military had not destroyed their files because many of their investigators were looking at Oswald's military intelligence connections. And he felt the CIA had lied to his committee. And he looked me mm. right in the eye and said, keep going. <laughs> so I did. That was, that was actually after I'd come back from Israel and the West Bank. It was, mm. And uh, he passed away in 91, and I wish I'd have talked to him more. I felt like I, I needed to read more and get in into the archives more. And uh, years later, at a conference with the assassination records and uh, assassination archives research center in Washington, I guess this is six years ago, Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh -huh. presented. And he had been a law professor at Notre Dame. And he said, and this is a close paraphrase, the CIA lied to my committee. I don't trust anything 
that they say. They should mm. be forced to answer for the lies to their committee, and they should turn over their files. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be in the news. And yeah. a couple newspapers picked it up, and that was it. And even after all of the files were to be released, which was part of the Assassination Record and Review Board, which was developed after Oliver Stone's movie in reaction to the movie mm -hmm. and the public outcry, the panel looks at files, and they actually released about 5 million pages of documents that Congress hadn't seen. Hmm. We still have hundreds of thousands of documents that have not been released, including a lot of CIA files, including files of people whose careers were, were in concert with Lee Harvey Oswald's involvement with intelligence agencies. George Joannides headed the CIA and was in charge of all sorts of counterintelligence and propaganda operations in the southern part of the United States that Oswald appears to have been part of. So there's been a lawsuit for the past hmm. 10 years to release the files, and they're still not released. So after 54 hmm. years, we have the government still saying that it was Oswald alone or Oswald maybe with a few mob figures and the CIA huh. and the Secret Service and military not releasing all the files that should be released. Yeah. So bottom line is, I think there's a huge story there that is yeah. part of our history. And as President Kennedy said to Eastern Europe to try to inspire them in 1962, and this is on uh, Radio Liberty and Voice of America, he's saying we seek a free flow of information. For a nation that's afraid to judge truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that's afraid of its people. And what he was saying to Eastern Europe then is applicable to the United States today. About Tom Rice, you're running against the same incumbent um, Republican who uh, you ran against in 2016. I think at that time he won with around 61% of the vote. Do you feel like the dynamics of the district have changed at all. Uh, do you think people are more willing to look outside of the Republican Party? Because I'm imagining that your district is mainly registered Republicans. Um, and and how do you think perceive getting a win out of this? It's a 55% Republican district, okay. uh, which makes it at the outer limits of what's called the swing district. So it's mm -hmm. a lot more winnable than a district that's 60-40. Gotcha. We have seen over the last year uh, winds of change that are pretty strong. We saw it in a number of elections around the country, most recently the congressional election in Pennsylvania where Connor Lamb won. And it was a district mm -hmm. that's similar to the one I'm in, and there was about 20% change. Now, Connor Lamb's young, handsome guy, good speaker, good candidate, and he ran against somebody who wasn't all that popular. But I think it, it shows, even in areas that were pretty conservative, uh, a lot of folks are alarmed and appalled at Trump. A lot of independents are turning out to vote. Democrats are much more mobilized. Some Republicans aren't voting, and it's a significant change. Of course, it's mm -hmm. expensive to do a poll. If I get through the primaries, which will be very tough for me to do, 
is the DCCC has found their candidate, and there'll be a lot of money up against the Sanders progressive. But if I get through, the standard is you run a poll. If you look close, and we will look close, any Democrat will look close now, because a lot of people have changed their views. But let's say cautiously. This is maybe a 53-47 race right now. Mm-hmm. But it might even be 52-48. And I think Republicans are losing ground. and Democrats are finally registering people, organizing, running teach-ins. Um, I've got two panel discussions this week. One, the school-to-prison pipeline, and one on sustainability. Uh, so I, I think... We are learning to mobilize differently. I'm doing ministerial breakfasts. I've been in 40 different churches. We've got people organizing in different ways. My fundraising is now in concert with other progressive candidates where we're trading lists so that we're fundraising around the country, doing a number of Mm -hmm. things differently. It's not an easy process to learn. Um, Right. Even... President Obama, who is arguably the most gifted candidate we've seen from the Democratic Party in years, lost his first try for Congress. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not putting myself really in the, in the same um, language. So did Bernie, for that matter. It's tough to win the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do have to learn the hard way. Incidentally, there wasn't anybody in the state that could run the campaign that could do it on a couple hundred thousand dollars. The people that come mm-hmm. recommended are, are used to working with a lot of money. So you have to learn how to do different forms of grassroots organizing. And in essence, that's what you're doing. You're pulling together the progressive coalitions working inside the Democratic Party right. to try to reform it and outside that's the right. Democratic Party to try to create a, as much um, clarification and light on important topics as you can to mobilize people. With Places like South Carolina that have not been part of a 50-state strategy, perhaps, haven't put in the money to open the offices, to have the field organizers, even do systematic voter registration the last 15 years, which put all Mm -hmm. Democrats at a disadvantage. Literally, they love us because we're the first in the South primary, and then they forget about us for four years. So we're having to overcome that. It is what it is. I also want to clarify some of the difficulties with the establishment wing of the party, if I must. Yeah. I oh, had please a do. conversation with Nancy Pelosi when I ran in 2016 at mm-hmm. the big fundraiser in Charleston. And I knew not to ask for money, so I asked for opposition research. And I was informed that after I raised $700,000, the show <laughs> a poll that indicates that I could win. They would help out. I have subsequently learned that when you raise that money, there's a tendency for your campaign to lose its independence. As the money comes in, the messaging starts to change as they start to Mm -hmm. frame the ads. So there is uh, a real fight within the Democratic Party for the soul of the party. I agree. I'm not taking any corporate or banking donations because I deeply believe nobody can serve two masters. I agree. And that money in elections is like drugs on a schoolyard. There's no decent amount. And that the Citizens United against the Federal Election Commission 
the worst decision from the Supreme Court since Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Then freedom was defined as the freedom to be separate. And here freedom is defined as buying elections and creating greater inequality in the mm-hmm. name of free speech. So I think we're up against it in ways that we never would have imagined. I can't imagine any of the wealthy slave-owning founding fathers that would have gone along with the Citizens United decision. It's that bad. Yeah. And we're stuck it with bad. it and have to find new ways to fight against it. So I'm trying the best I can in my neck of the woods. And uh, my team, I'm very pleased, is, is going along with me. We know that you have to move very fast in a primary, mm-hmm. that you have to clarify the issues because we're going to be facing hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're already calling for a day of prayer and fasting at the steps of the state house on behalf of the rights of children. And this is a, a series of rights that Marion Wright Edelman had mm-hmm. influenced Martin Luther King with, that King stood for, and Marion Wright Edelman was inspiring Martin Luther King's Poor People's March on Washington. She's still fighting for it. We're fighting for it. And we're calling for the churches to join in to fight for the rights of kids. So I think any Mm -hmm. organization that's trying to win from the outside has to be able to, to look at things a little differently, practically, quickly. You run to organize, organize to run, and make these calls because the church community and the Democrats, and even my friends in labor and the environmental communities, hadn't made these calls before, and we keep losing if we stay separate. The the history of America is when we fight and unite, we win. And that's been the history of progressive movements. So we're hoping to to be a spark to to move that that direction as well. Yeah, the DNC and the state party chairs still seem to be a bit tone deaf on these issues and it's troublesome to me and um, you know Nancy Pelosi's you know from my state I know you're originally from California as well and she's being mm-hmm. primary herself at this point because of these antics she's more than once sided with the donor class over her constituents and I don't think she understands the problem um, I'm sorry that the DCCC is funding the other guy uh, that's <laughs> not surprising um, but, you know, it also seems to me what's very clear from the last few election cycle is that Democrats and left-leaning independents sit home unless they're, not, unless they're excited about a candidate. So every time they run another corporate milk toast candidate, they lose a lot of voter participation. And, I, you know, it, it seems to me at this point you have to question the DNC with whether or not they're really interested in winning elections or just placating the donor class. I also think well, you're right about right. the 50 state solution. Um, I, I, I have this other beef with the DNC because they did back away from that. And at the same time, in doing so, they've created a very gerrymandered country that's handed more congressional seats to the Republicans than you can shake a stick at. And they need to own their part of that. They walked away from supporting a lot of the states in their elections. And all of that gerrymandering comes at the state level from the state Senate. So when the Republicans started taking control of the state Senate, state by state in these areas, those state senators were able to redistrict their states to make the Congress much more tough for us to win elections in. And so this is all connected together. And it was a huge mistake. And 
I really wish that the uh, the DNC would would come to realizations and the DCCC would come to realizations on this stuff because they still don't seem to get it. Um, That's anyway. why it's so valuable for you to have your show and have people hear that yeah. analysis. One of yeah. the fellows who ran to chair the DNC was Jamie Harrison, who was yeah. the state party leader here. I got in a fight with Jamie on Twitter, <laughs> and he ended up blocking me. I'll have to send you the screenshots one day. But it was over this very issue we're discussing right now, and he didn't want to hear it. Yeah, well, I went to him. I mean, Jamie's a nice enough guy, but he's a corporate lobbyist, and he was heading the party, yeah, he and he didn't do voter reg. And I even said, look, why don't we do voter reg, and I'll put up half the money. You put up half the money. We'll do a model project for it. He still said no. And he infuriated a number of the other progressive candidates because he didn't help us any. Their metric only was money, and we mm -hmm. were doing other things to build the progressive wing within the party. Now, we were shunned. And jointly, the Sanders progressives that ran for Congress and the Senate, including Reverend Dixon, um, wrote an open letter uh, saying that we didn't think Harrison was, was ready to head the party. And we talked about yeah. our experiences. So I think that the fight is both inside the party uh, and outside mm -hmm. the party. And I think it's a vital fight. And I think a lot more yeah. is at stake than people imagine. Uh, with yeah. foreign policy that could be led by uh, Pompeo and Bolton uh, to yeah. walking away from the Paris Accords to this tax bill that's the latest chapter in class warfare, taking food mm -hmm. out of the mouths of children to give money to the wealthy that are wealthier than biblical kings could have dreamed yeah. of being addicted to their wealth, and we gave yeah. them more money. Now I'll give business speak that some could follow on where those corporate profits were actually going, according to the Harvard Business Review, 2014. 90% mm -hmm. of corporate profits were already going to stock buybacks, higher dividends, mergers right. and acquisitions, and management salaries. Only 10% was going into production and research and development. And this tax mm -hmm. bill made, made taxes on foreign investments even lower so that he yeah. gave no incentive to invest in the United States. And if I might, let me go a little further. A transnational corporations that pledge allegiance to the best investment opportunity, not to the United <laughs> yep. States of America. That's correct. And we're fighting that as well as a president that's the poster child for the seven deadly sins and all the problems that have festered for a while so that we have mm -hmm. the worst inequality since 1928. And mm -hmm. I think the church leaders are so far behind on protecting their congregations that it is deeply unsettling. And Martin Luther King was right when he said, those who profess to save the souls of men and refuse to confront the slums that damn them and the economic conditions that cripple them are a dry-as-dust religion. We are facing mm. religious leaders that have failed to live up to their calling. So mm -hmm. it's hard to know where to start on some of this. I speak in terms of common sense for the common good. And that to have a single-payer plan or a different tax plan that responsibly invests 
in infrastructure and early childhood education, making college affordable and sustainable energy, that this is just common sense for the common mm -hmm. good. And I let the business crowd know that the Canadian plan for business is something that Canadian businessmen wouldn't give up because it costs less money and it's more efficient than ours and lowers the national debt. And I think the language that we use with different constituencies, we have to be a bit more creative with. So I, I'm confident that even in a conservative district, that we've got a lot of wind at our back, and that if I can get in front of the business crowd, that we can win them over. We have sweet reason as well as justice on our side. That's a fair point. I think uh, many self-identified Republicans are equally disgusted by the income inequality that they're facing. They may not understand the deeper reasons as to why they can't find a, a job that pays them decently, why they, they're making less money now than they did 10 years ago, why while the cost of living has increased. They may not understand those reasons, but they know that that's the experience that they're having. And I also think that's also why people glommed on to voting for Trump. You know, Trump isn't the disease. He's a symptom of the disease. And the disease is the failed neoliberal policy and the income inequality, all of these, the privatization, all of these, all of these things that we've engaged in the last, you know, 30, 40 years that have brought us to this particular, particular place, which is why I really think that progressive candidates could win elections because I know there are plenty of disenfranchised right-leaning folks that feel the pain and are looking for a way out of that pain. And so, um, I think we're going to see a change in dynamics over this uh, 2018 election cycle. Um, so hopefully you persevere in your primary because I think uh, you have the right stuff here. I wanted to ask you uh, about the teacher strikes. Uh, we've seen an increase in teacher strikes across the uh, nation in response to the low pay that they've been receiving. And additionally, a lot of folks don't realize that teachers are responsible to, responsible to pay for their own materials, you know. They don't have a budget for that stuff. So um, is South Carolina, uh, is what, currently ranked 48th on the ed in education um, in the U.S. World and News Report. What is your opinions on how, uh, how you could improve education, not only in South Carolina, but just in general? Near and dear to my heart. Uh, yeah, we're, we're at the bottom. And... We have a unique system of funding in this country where only about 10% of the funding for education comes in from the federal government. And about half mm -hmm. is local and 40% from the state. Uh, and I, I don't see that changing quickly. The movement is more toward charter schools with the illusion that those will be more efficient. I mean, teachers have been underpaid in non-union states for a long time. And... For years, teachers have taken, on average, $500 out of their pocket to buy books and materials for students, and I'll bet you that's an understatement on it. Mm -hmm. A lot of good teachers are, are buying other things for students in need, and uh, I think there's a, a calling to teaching, but right now we're pulling from the bottom third of our college class to go into teaching uh, because the pay is low and the conditions are tough, and we we uh, essentially handcuff teachers and have them teach to the test. When I started teaching in 1976 at the junior high level, I had six classes and 40 in a class. And I, it didn't take long to see in the teacher's lounge all the teachers were burned out. Mm -hmm. So that this isn't a, a new phenomena. We can look around the world for different systems 
that would work better, uh, but it would take a significant education reform movement to get there. Everything from Montessori that could be used in the public schools for, for younger kids to, let's say, uh, versions of the Finnish model. The yeah. country of Finland years back decided that it was going to be an honor to be a teacher. You were going to be respected. You were going to be trained well with two master's degrees, and you would start out at 80000 a year. And they don't give any end-of-year tests, achievement tests, and their students right. are the best in the world. So, And that's embraced by conservatives in Finland. It's mm-hmm. non-controversial. The conservatives in Finland are taking the positions like Bernie Sanders. Um, so I, I think we can see those models, but I think we're a ways away from some sort of movement to mm-hmm. get us there. And yeah. Betsy DeVos and the right wing have picked up a head of steam and Desperate people in inner cities will go to some of these charters if they can get scholarships. So it's it's fragmented the debate on things. But, you know, it's been clear for years if you start kids earlier, you have trained teachers at an early age for uh, 3K and 4K teachers with master's degrees. The kids do very, right. very well. I mean, that's long been part of our research, but we don't fund it just as we don't fund rebuilding the infrastructure or putting money into uh, making college affordable or, or picking winners and losers in a field where it's, it's clear that we're going to have to invest like sustainable energy. And mm-hmm. ultimately, I think we've got to make the case we need to invest in America so that we get the, these possibilities. But education reform has, has fascinated me for years, I took a look at the Korean system back about 10 years ago, and I think it has a lot to recommend it, but it's a little rough. But, you know, there's no reason to have a 180-day school year when uh, around the world it's 220 to 240 days. Right, right. So, you know, we put all of our young people at a disadvantage, and the inequality of funding is, is baked into the system, and and that's not mm-hmm. fair, nor is it productive for the country, nor does it stabilize families. I mean, I think teachers could be trained differently. In South Carolina, they're not required to take even one class on intergroup relations. They're not required to take an additional mm. class on economics so they can explain what's going on in the world. So those that get through, you know, many will go on to it to advanced degrees, but we could do a better job paying, retaining and training teachers, having classes that are smaller. Um, you know, I think that's a, a place to start on things. But again, 90% of the funding is state and local. So we've mm-hmm. got to build a broader movement rather than, you know, just winning back a congressional seat. Well, we definitely need to overhaul our attitudes towards education. I agree with you on that. You know, uh, my family's from Malmo, Sweden, the south of Sweden. And Sweden, you know, you bring up longer school years, um, et cetera, et cetera. And Sweden's very similar to Finland that in that they put a higher premium on education, including the, including the conservatives, because they see it as an, an investment in their economy, a more educated yeah. workforce um, contributes to the economy and society in a broader way. It's more sustainable in the long term. There's less crime. So it's, it, you know, the way it's perceived is much different than it here in the United States. So we need to sort of overhaul the way we look at that, I think. Um, you're right. 
I also know that you are a, a graduate of the UC system, as am I. Um, so when we attended the University of California, it was still largely funded by the state under Pat Brown's master plan. Uh, now flash forward to 2018, and less than 10% of the funding is coming from the state. So the UC system at this point might as well be private university. They're looking to their alumni and other folks to fund the system because um, of the way it's been defunded by the state. So I think we need a fundamental change in that area as well. And I know when Bernie Sanders was talking about having public free, um, tuition-free public university, a lot of the pushback that he received from from the Clinton faction of the party was that that was a unicorn thing that he was asking for. But how could this be a unicorn thing if it's something we once had? This is something we had and we gave away. We engaged in privatization. That's what we did. So uh, I agree completely with what you're saying. It's plenty doable. <laughs> right? We've succeeded it's, in the past. I, I started at UCLA in 1968. It was 300 bucks a year. I didn't realize yeah. how fortunate I was, and I thought it was such a good idea it would last forever. And we can do yeah. it again. We can make those investments, and we will make families stronger and communities stronger and have less crime and, and, and be able to, to do a lot of things in society that we've long dreamed of doing by educating our youth better. And Sanders, I think, was also right. Some of the European models where they tax currency transactions – a financial mm. transaction tax can help yeah. supplement money going in to making public higher education affordable. But I think a lot of people also have forgotten that higher taxes on the very wealthy was a way that we built infrastructure and made these investments in the past. Robert Reich mm -hmm. is brilliant in, in breaking this stuff down. And mm -hmm. uh, in his documentary, Inequality for All, uh, he talks about this. My name is Robert Reich. I was Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. Before that, the Carter administration. Before that, I was a special aide to Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> of all developed nations, the United States has the most unequal distribution of income, and we're surging toward even greater inequality. 1928 and 2007 become the peak years for income concentration. It looks like a suspension bridge. Last year, we made 36,000. I probably make 50,000 a year, working 70 hours a week. The middle class is struggling. Now, people occasionally say to me, what nation does it better? The answer is the United States. In the decades after World War II, the economy boomed, but you had very low inequality. Do you know Robert Reich? I do indeed. He's a communist. When I was a kid, bigger boys would pick on me. I think it changed my life. I had to protect people from the people who would beat them up economically. Who is actually looking out for the American worker? The answer is nobody. Workers don't have power if they don't have a voice. Their wages and benefits start eroding. We are losing equal opportunity in America. Any one of you who feels cynical, just consider where we have been. You know, the taxes on the wealthiest 1% are going to have to be higher if we make these public investments. We can come up with creative ways of sourcing it. We lack the political will. And sadly, it drifted away. We're going to have to fight to get it back. But our model could even be what we were doing before in the 1960s and 70s. You know, that's a valid point. I don't 
you know, I think we've gotten away, away with this idea that taxation is bad, and it's not. We have to pay for our public goods, and that includes education, that includes paved roads, that includes our police department, our fire department. You can go down the list of things that have to be paid for, and we've gotten so far down uh, this idea that taxation is bad that we have crumbling infrastructure in the country that can't get repaired because we simply don't have the revenue base. And, you know, at one point during World War II, I think it was, you had a, a tax rate of 94% on the top 1%. Even going into the beginning of the Reagan years, it was 50%. So, right. uh, you know, we, we need to change the course on how we perceive taxation in this country. Progressive taxation is something that even the Greeks embraced. This is not a bad thing. It's an efficient way to pay for public goods. And we all benefit from that. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. You also taught for five years at a medium security men's prison, I believe, here in California. How was that experience um, for you? Uh, what were you teaching there? And did it inform your opinion in any way on our criminal justice system as far as recidivism is concerned and or private prisons, et cetera? Yeah, it was Chino medium security men's prison. And, oh, Chino, okay. Uh, had a s series of epiphanies that are pretty standard for anybody who teaches in a prison. I should have written about it, but I thought mm -hmm. when I started 1977, I was 27 years old. Who the hell am I to be writing about it? Other people have done this for 30 years. They've forgotten more mm -hmm. than I know, but they never wrote the book either. So I, mm -hmm. I look back, that's been one of my regrets. Early on, after my first few weeks where I got over my nervousness, started to learn the culture and the language, uh, I found that I was at what had been the honor prison, and had they had been very creative with programs to reach inmates. Back in 77, they were teaching them how to do underwater welding, but it was only hmm. a handful of people. It was like 20 people could get into the program. They gave me a green light to set up a GED preparation program and when I succeeded with mm. that, it was a green light to invite in guest lecturers, yoga teachers. I could do whatever I wanted. I stumbled into playing basketball with the inmates just because I did sports in high school. I thought, well, I'll give this a try and uh, get my workout in, and, and maybe I'll get to know some of the guys better, and it'll help me as a teacher. And uh, uh, it, was, it was always an interesting game. It was a five-to-life game. You didn't drive the lane. But afterward, mm -hmm. I got people to talk in ways that I never could in the classroom. So maybe six months into teaching, I asked the question, at what point in your life did you just not give a damn about anything to look at the question of hopelessness? Mm -hmm. And they said at the age of 11, 12, and 13, it became clear to me that we have to reach many kids much earlier or they're going to fall into despair and they're going to get their needs met on the streets any way they can. Mm -hmm. And after a while, when I started to get a better sense of prison culture and language, I talked more with guys of how they joined gangs and could they get out of gangs and what happened if they stayed in gangs and would they, they get a, a chance to push drugs afterwards with a franchise in a certain area. And I started to hear a lot of stories. And uh, as long as you... Um, are open to listening and realize that half of it's going to be BS. You're going to hear an awful lot of stories that are things that someone raised like I was in the 
the middle class couldn't even imagine. Right. Uh, so it it did kind of kind of change me to somebody who was more in solidarity with the working class, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I realized prison reform was seen as the liberal do-gooder idea and it really should be common sense conservatism if you want to stop crime and strengthen mm-hmm. families and create more liberty and justice for all yeah you just have to recognize what's what's going on and, yeah uh, the human factor no question about it and i'll tell you what was the most successful of the programs um in changing the lives of inmates was conjugal visits in a trailer huh. within the confines okay. of the prison, two-day visits with the family. Mm-hmm. Make love to your wife, be with your kids, have a few meals, watch TV together. It ought to be framed as family values. It would save money, save families, lower crime, and we know it works. It's worked for a long time. In the state of South Carolina, that's seen as coddling the inmates. Right. South Carolina that had a prison where some of your listeners may know they had seven seven people that were killed three days ago in a prison riot. At 11.30, we entered the first dorm at Lee to take that dorm back. We had enough people there to enter safely, and we took that dorm back. At 12.30, we went and entered the second dorm at Lee and safely took that dorm back. At 2 o'clock, we entered the last dorm at Lee and started conducting the roll call counts. As you know, there were 17 people that were injured last night and seven deaths. What we believe from the initial investigation is that this was all about territory. This is about contraband. This is about cell phones, and you've heard us talk about these over and over again. These folks are fighting over real money and real territory while they're incarcerated. The inmate who has spoken with us said that he watched as inmates' bodies lay outside on the sidewalk with no authorities around, with no one attempting to provide medical attention, and correctional officers remaining in what he called a control bubble in a secure space where they have windows and cameras where they can monitor certain parts of the prison. So there's a lot to fight on it, and it's just not an issue that's much engaged in my neck of the woods. The most successful methods in the state of California were at the Chino prison. Before we imprisoned so many people, we didn't have any room to put them. So uh, money mm-hmm. for those more experimental programs dried up. But they were teaching inmates to repair a tractor, how to farm. Right. And the same person that was doing that was also teaching them how to get through a GED uh, and their counselor. And they had groups of nine or ten. And it was very successful. So, again, we've seen models work in the past. We, we've lost some of our history on that. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I'd like to be the first member of Congress that has the honor to serve who's actually taught in a prison that could share this on the floor of Congress. We recently saw uh, Trump overturn the offshore drilling um or reinstate our ability to have offshore drilling. And, you know, both of our states have beautiful coastlines that I would imagine you would want to protect yours as well. What is your stance on what Trump did and how do we fight? How do we fight this? 
most of the communities up and down the Atlantic coast agreed and were able to get their chambers of commerce to agree. The communities saw what happened with the BP oil spill. They realized mm -hmm. the scenic coast is threatened. The tourism is threatened. Property values are threatened. Fisheries are threatened. And who gets the oil sold on the world market? This is just yeah. capitulation to the fossil fuel industry at a time when climate change is a great threat to humanity and subsequent generations. And if I might go a little bit further, this is crimes yeah. against humanity. This is going to affect hundreds of generations in the future. The science is in on this. It's a question of how bad it's going to be. And the Pentagon in 2003 said climate change is a greater threat to national security than terrorism because it changes who gets the water, where there are going to be droughts. We're still fixing Puerto Rico, and we're a wealthy country. Right. Imagine what That's happens right. when that hits Pakistan. Well, I'll remind your, your listeners. Back about a decade ago, they had floods in Pakistan, and the weak central government couldn't supply the doctors, nurses, water, and food, and the Taliban stepped into the breach. Mm -hmm. The drought in northern Syria for four years was a contributing factor to the civil war there. The drought in southern Yemen was a contributing factor to the civil war there. The drought yeah. in southern Sudan was a contributing factor to the civil war there. And to me, this is the ultimate taxation without representation on future generations. Al Gore was right. Future generations are going to look back at us and they will curse us for what we didn't do. We were addicted to our wealth, our security, and, and we weren't looking responsibly at these questions. No, and I think you're right. Climate change is probably the biggest problem that we face, and there seems to be absolutely no will to do anything about it. It's mind-blowing to me. And this is both parties. I mean, we saw in this last election, you had, uh, you know, Clinton was supporting fracking as good foreign policy. I mean, are you kidding me with that one? Um, she also uh, supported the Keystone XL pipeline. So this is something both parties have engaged in. It. And I also think it's a big reason why uh, you, you had a lot of Democrats that were so disenfranchised with Clinton as a candidate. They didn't see her as being front and center on environmental policy. Uh, and yes, yeah. all of these things are related. The unrest, that the drought, the famine, all of these things that start to come up from the changes in our weather are going to be very problematic. And the cost for the reinsurance on the flooding, the hurricanes that we're experiencing in this country are astronomical. So eventually, you're going to have insurance markets that aren't going to be able to deal uh, with the property damage. It's a problem. Um, I think you're right on that. Um, I wanted to also ask you about um, the ACA, or otherwise known as Obamacare. I know Tom Rice uh, was one of the first Republicans to push for a repeal of Obamacare and was advocating the sort of Tea Party idea of a lawsuit. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that you support Medicare for All. Um, right. What is your stance? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. What is your stance on the ACA? Uh, do we walk away from it and just go full-born for Medicare for All, or is there a transition we do where, where do you see um, yourself fitting into that conversation? The uh, ACA was essentially a series of ideas from the Heritage Foundation. That's it was true. Obama's third choice 
It was a version of Bob Dole's ideas. And it was better than what we had before. No question about it. It was a third of a step in the right direction. But we can clearly see models that have worked for 45 years in Canada that are better. Now, that's where Obama started, and he didn't have the support. Because Obama yeah. never went back to his grassroots, even when he had good ideas. He figured he was the smartest guy in the room, and somehow he could deal with it. And we needed people protesting to deal with it. Because a lot of the public likes the idea, but it lost in Congress. His second idea, in order to provide a wedge to get to some sort of Medicare for all, was to have choice. If you liked your private plan, you could keep it. But if you wanted a public plan, you could choose it. Choice and competition. Well, mm -hmm. the medical insurance industry never wanted choice and competition, and they killed Obama's second idea. So we ended up with his third choice. Right. And the Canadian system is one that would work for us. Conservative mm -hmm. Canadian businessmen have liked it for decades. It's good for business. Costs two-thirds as much right. money. It lowers right. the national debt. People have more money to spend. 70% of our economy is aggregate demand. So if you put a couple mm -hmm. thousand dollars more in people's pocket, most people are going to spend it. So... It's easier for business, and that's what we're going to have to do to sell the idea, is to make sure that our, our coalition is broader and stronger because it's in their interest as well as the public interest. Yeah, I agree. You know, half of the recent polling I've seen, half of the Republican voter base, I'm not talking about the politicians, I'm talking about actual voters, do support uh, a single-payer system of some sort. It makes no sense that we attach health insurance, for-profit health insurance, to your employment, because if you lose your job, then you have no care. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And the Medicare system is actually far more economically efficient. I think the overheads, what, at 2 to 3%. So what, and at, for private insurance, it's about 30, 40%. So what we're doing in this country absolutely makes no sense. I'm a big believer in Medicare for all. And you're right about the stepping stones. I wish, um, I had wished at that particular moment, though, that Obama had stood his ground on the public option. At that particular moment, he had control of both chambers. And I feel right. that, I feel like the reason he lost his voice in that was because there were Democrats, congressional Democrats, senators, who did not support the public option or Medicare for all because they were taking money from the health insurance industry. Yeah, I agree um, with you. Yeah, so I was very disappointed when he didn't stand his ground on that particular item. And that, you know, honestly, that was when I first started waking up to how bought the DNC was by lobbyists. I started to really look into that and see um, see what was going on and started to lose my religion, so to speak, as far as being a member of the party, you know. And I've been a leftist, a Democrat my whole life. And, you know, as, I, as I'm here in 2018 seeing what's going on, I think I'm more angry with the internal mechanisms of our own party uh, and the corruption and, and the lobbyists and the corporations all buying things up than sometimes I am at the right, which I know sounds ridiculous, but it's actually um, the way I feel right now. I feel like we've been betrayed by our own party on so many levels. Um, I, th I, I think you're right. And I think the Clintons took that path in 92 Bill Clinton was the most conservative of the Democratic candidates running for the presidency. 
yeah. and he got the money from the Democratic Leadership Council, and it had right. shaped his views and Hillary's views ever since. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain tragedy to that because when Clinton was governor in Arkansas, he was more progressive, and he got voted out. Mm-hmm. And his path back in was to, to take the money and to become much right. more moderate. Um, and you wonder where Obama would have been if he didn't have to raise $1.2 billion. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it changed him to a significant extent. And we are stuck with the poison of money in politics. Um, and yeah. I think you're right. We have to engage uh, within the Democratic Party to make it a party that's free of corporate interests so that it represents working people. And I think that's, until we do that, uh, there'll be populist appeals from the Republicans, but a desperate population can get fooled. Fox's strategy is right out of Joseph Goebbels. It's the big lie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. They are not they're not afraid to lie so that CNN or Clinton or Democrats aren't just disagreed with on principle. They're demonized. They have their line of the day. So it is corporatist, but also um, borrowing tactics that can deceive and have. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And the unfortunate reality is time and time again, Democrats hand them over arguments to be made. They keep engaging in sort of bad decision making and hypocrisy where you, you see it happening. and You just kind of shake your head like uh, you just opened yourself up for attack from Fox or from the right. And I don't I, I want our party to become clean and because until we are clean, we're not fit to fight. If that makes sense, and and right. that's where I, we, we won't yeah, be fighting so. for the right things. And and you're right. There's there's a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party right now. And yeah. while it is um, an awkward fight, uh, all people really have to do is join up with their county party and start to speak out. Yeah, do voter registration right. and talk to people because I think sweet reason is on our side and from what mm-hmm. i've seen the new people joining the party which aren't in that great in numbers are basically people that uh agree with us yeah so that no you're right a lot of you're wind right. at our back but but mm-hmm. we aren't able to we have to to get some people to office that are saying these things so that mm-hmm. we can point we can give a sense of hope that we actually can work within the party system now, where I am, I, I ran fusion with the Greens and the Working Families Party, but they're awfully weak. They didn't yeah. do much to help out, and they're still not doing much to help out. I know they're going to love me saying this, but but it's the truth. Well, um, they don't have the money and the numbers that the Democrats do, so we have to dem-enter, so to speak. I, I understand the dem-exit people. I get their anger. It's completely justified, but what you're saying right now is 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 just a fact of the matter. We are in a environment in which these two parties, the Democrats and Republicans, have the infrastructure, they have the money, they have the power. So if we, we if we really want to change politics, we have to infiltrate the party and change what it is. We can't 
get the same uh, we can't get the same worth from just burning it to the ground, even though it'll feel good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's not a system like Europe that's multi-party. We're tough right, we're not parliamentary. Yeah, here. that's right. Although on the local right. level, I have you know I have I have voted for Green Party folks. I have voted for independent folks, and I would do so again without batting an eyelash if it, they're the right person for the job. So, you know, like we have here in California, Gail McLaughlin, who is running for lieutenant governor, she's running NPP independent. Um, she was the mayor of Richmond uh, for two terms that um, took on the, the bank. Uh, she was the one that was using um, eminent domain against the, the banks during the crisis to take back the properties for the homeowners. I don't know if you followed this story, but I she's been endorsed by... I I like the idea. Yeah, she's a warrior. Yeah, she's great. She's a warrior. Uh, and she's been um, endorsed now by our revolution, but she's running as an independent and she has my vote and my, and my support. But, you know, again, you know, I was talking with Finn Canova this past week and he made a really valid point in California. We have a semi open primary system. So it's not as difficult here because it's because we don't have the two parties controlling the primary system entirely and independents do have a voice in it. You can legitimately end up with two Democrats in the final showdown or a Democrat and an independent in, in the final showdown. It's not necessarily going to be a vote splitting situation where you have a Democrat and a Republican, and that's the way it is. So I also feel, for this reason, having seen the benefits of that in the state, I would like to see more states become open primaries. I think they're much more democratic. I think you have a better chance of winning if you're not fully engrossed in the politics of the party. And I also, uh, think you end up with just better candidates across the board. Um, what do you feel about open primaries? Do you think they're a good idea? Is that something you support? I think there's a lot to recommend it. You know, we don't have it here. Um, and uh, I think it could, could open up the dialogue. I, I think that's part of it. You know, I think um, people have to be willing to, to engage and get get outside their uh, outside of their comfort zone ways to bring about change. You know, I, I think I, I end with a call to action, and I I mean it. I think our our involvement is experiential learning is our best teacher. Mm-hmm. Theory until you get into the fight, and then you right. learn how to frame the issues, how to mobilize, uh, and and how to be able to work better with others and, and unite to fight more effectively. So I, I call for fighting at all levels, wherever people want to fight, if they want to fight to bring about an open primary or they want to work at a local level or they want to fight on environmental issues or prison reform mm-hmm. or jobs. And, uh, right. and I, I'm flat out telling people, I think we need to pray more, reflect more, read more, talk lovingly with others who disagree with us more and organize more. Mm-hmm. All change comes from the bottom up, not from the top down. When the people lead, the leaders will follow. And then I try to shift into gears to get people to, to do more. I think, I think you're correct on that. The change is going to come from the bottom up. And I would also like to encourage folks to run for uh, delegate positions within the party on the state level in their state, because that's where a lot of the decision making happens. And the more progressive and Berniecrats, et cetera, that we have in those positions, the more likely we are to change the way the party sees things. I think that's a good way to get involved. Absolutely. So where do people, 
where do people go if they want to donate to your campaign? Um, so if listeners are hearing this and they think you're running a good campaign, where should they go? It's malhyman.com is the website, a work in progress. And also people might want to look at my Facebook page, M-A-L number four, Congress. And same thing for Twitter. The, the website is malhyman, M-A-L-H-Y-M-A-N dot com. Fan- Fantastic.